Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times. And today's show will fo- we'll focus on domestic violence and efforts in Monroe County to prevent it. We'll emphasize the protective order process as well. Joining us uh, in the studio, we have uh, five guests with us today. And these five people are – they're used to being together. They were at a forum last night. Um, I'll start uh, through the list. Monroe County Clerk Linda Robbins is here. Middleway House Executive Director Toby Strout. Monroe County Chief Deputy Prosecutor Bob Miller, Indiana State Police Officer Kevin Getz, and Monroe Circuit Judge Francie Hill. If you want to join the conversation, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Well, thank you all for coming in and doing sort of a, a repeat plus uh, performance from, from what happened last night. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about protective orders, but I'm going to turn the microphone over first to Linda Robbins. Um, Linda, you organized last night's uh, forum, and uh, and why did you do that? I, well, this is an, this is a uh, very important issue for the uh, residents of Monroe County. I think I think because this is something that is invisible. And I think it needs to be very visible. Domestic violence is a uh, an issue where people are afraid to talk about it. They're afraid to be associated with it. The victim won't admit it happened. The violator didn't do it, and, and the rest of us just don't want to know. But, you know, it happens a lot. It happens to one out of every four women and one out of every 20 men, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. It can happen to anybody. And... I also wanted to put a face to this and let and say that I am a survivor of domestic violence and show that this can happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. So you know firsthand how difficult it is uh, to come forward and how you can be in denial. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? Well, I, I have to say that this happened in another state. It happened a long time ago, but it, it very much has um, given me the drive to make a difference where I'm at now. But, um, you know, the abuse started very gradually, and my husband at that time seemed to make it be the, my fault. I really believed it was my fault. If I hadn't done this, he wouldn't beat me. If I hadn't done that, he wouldn't beat me. Um, and uh, if if we weren't, didn't have fi- tight finances, he wouldn't beat me. And I kept thinking it might get better, but it never did. And there was one instance, finally, when uh, he beat me and I fell back down the steps and he had me up against a table and and I looked over and saw my two-year-old son who was playing with his train set and he acted like there was absolutely nothing else going on mm-hmm. until I hit his dad and he was very angry with me for having done so. So um, it was very apparent to me that, that this is a wrong place to raise my children and a, a bad place to be. Mm-hmm. So um, I left, but I left about four times before I finally left him for good. And it was a very scary process because for months after I left him, he would hang around outside my windows and uh, listen to any phone conversations. Or if I had someone visit me at the house, he would key the car. Um there was one inst- one day he he had my son for visitation and taught him how to write and 
Can I say this on the air? I don't know. What are you going to say? <laughs> he taught my son uh, how to his first words in writing where my mommy's a bitch. Yeah, you can say that. Okay. And my son, who clearly had no idea what it meant, was nevertheless very impressed that he was able to write. Mm-hmm. Um, my experiences, and just to, just to kind of get into some of the experiences, but... Um, with the system, I went to file for a protective order, and the I was received dirty looks. I mean, I had no help with the paperwork and just kind of judgmental. And I had one day when my husband was trying to kill me, I escaped, and I had a cut that was so bad that my that my eye wouldn't open, and uh, the police came and said, we think you just need to get along. When I finally made it into court for to, for the hearing for the protective order, the judge said, gosh, I hope you're not just one of those that's going to file and and uh, turn around the next day and drop it. And you know, to be honest with you, I don't remember if I ever got the protective order, but I certainly remember the judge. And mm-hmm. But, you know, the best day in my life, was when I got elected as clerk and got in a position where we could do something to make this process better. Mm-hmm. And would you like me to go ahead with this? Well, let's, let's stop right now. I want to get some okay, reaction good. from our other panelists, but thank you for, for sharing all that. And, Toby, um, you know, how, how typical um, is Linda's story? I mean, you've, what's your reaction when you hear it? It sounds familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Middleway House serves Martin Owen, Green, and Monroe counties. There are differences county to county. We still hear stories like Linda's uh, all too frequently. And um, it, I think that it's really important that people understand that leaving an abusive relationship is very difficult. It's a process. And it depends tremendously on the victim feeling that he or she can leave safely. And that's all about the coordinated community response to domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And so we have uh, some people in the room who are also involved in the response. Uh, Bob Miller's prosecutor. Um, what, 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 is the, um, what are the, the specific problems in going forward to prosecute a case? And you know, what do you, how do you work with, with victims? Well, it's, um, you know, it, it can seem uh, mind-boggling to people who aren't familiar with uh, the the culture uh, that uh, lends itself to uh, victimization in our society with respect to domestic violence because on the one hand you you hear uh, statistics like uh, uh, the fact that one-third of uh, women who are homicide victims are killed by their Mm -hmm. intimate partners yet only 25% of women who are domestic violence victims actually report their assaults to the police. And then um, half of those that do, uh, more than half of those that do actually report to the police don't want to see their partners prosecuted. So it, it, it requires prosecutors uh, to go to um, uh, policies that don't fit neatly into a traditional law and order model. And, um, of course, first and foremost, uh, our emphasis is on victim safety. Um, what can we do immediately to ensure uh, that the victim and her children will be safe? And uh, here in Monroe County, uh, the two most important factors uh, that we have implemented is, number one, uh, a mandatory arrest policy where probable cause exists so that we don't have to put it on a police officer to exercise discretion at the scene or you hear some of these stories about you know, maybe this isn't that big of a deal or, you know, get along. Those types of things don't exist here anymore because if there is probable cause and all that is required is her assertion that there was, in fact, an assault, that is sufficient uh, for an arrest. And and it should be taking place in every case. And then once the arrest is made, there is also a mandatory hold of 24 hours at the jail uh, before uh, the suspect could even be eligible to post bail. 
That provides sufficient time for a victim to consult with advocates at Middleway House, personnel at the prosecutor's office, and if necessary, to relocate herself and her children. And it also provides a cooling-off period for the assailant as well. So those are the two most important factors because, according to the research, the most effective deterrent to future violence is the immediate arrest of the offender. Mm -hmm. And we're doing that here in Monroe County. Okay. Um, Kevin Getz from the Indiana State Police. So how important is, you know, what what we're doing in Monroe County in terms of, you know, when you happen onto a scene, when you're, you know, called to a scene, um, that... Um, mandatory arrest policy, is that important to you? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's the first opportunity for us as a community, and especially those of us in the judicial system, to, as they say, the cycle. You know, we have an opportunity there to to break that cycle and and to initiate that process to to hopefully lessen the impact of what what domestic violence means to our community, and I mentioned last night at the uh, uh, at the roundtable discussion, do I think we're ever going to come to a complete end where there will be no domestic violence? I don't know. I don't think so. But to have the tools in place and to have these folks operating as one, certainly we have an opportunity to lessen that impact and. And I'm so glad Linda was able to tell her story because I think it's – I think as a community, we tend to fit the TV movie stereotype of what domestic violence is. It's a socioeconomic thing. It's limited to a certain population. Um, you have to be a certain economic stature. It doesn't happen if you're upper class or if you're middle class. And as a law enforcement officer, I can tell you from my experience that is not the case. Uh, I have worked cases where – Suspects were prominent. Um, I can recall uh, a case in uh, another county that I worked in which it was a a murder-suicide, and it involved a law enforcement officer who was the suspect. So this is is not an issue that's related to one segment of the population. It is far-reaching, and it doesn't just affect a mother. It affects her children. It affects her workplace. It affects a suspect. It affects his workplace. It affects our community as a whole. And and so certainly having that tool of making that arrest, taking the discretion, and it's unfortunate that 35 years ago the response was, well, come on, he's fine, Just he's been drinking, just cool off, go next door, that to be able to have that, hey, you don't have that option. If she fills out that affidavit, he goes to jail. Mm-hmm. Well, let me give our phone numbers again so we can have people call in if they have questions or comments, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Uh, the live chat is wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, I wanted to, to follow up on that because uh, Toby, Linda in, in particular, I, I would think that the mandatory arrest – it solves a lot of problems, but it also probably comes with some issues of its own because, you know, if you have a hot-headed um, perpetrator of domestic violence and then all of a sudden he spends 24 hours in jail and I would think uh, the victim is going to be really concerned about what happens after that 24 hours. And, you know, how how do you deal with that, Toby, when you're talking to people who – you know, come into middle way about, well, here's what, you know, here's what you're going to face in 24 hours. You know, what's your. Yeah. I mean, first, of course, we just try to make people feel comfortable and safe with us. And the next thing we do is a safety plan. Uh, That's something that you want to do with every encounter that you have with a victim of domestic violence. Safety planning first. Mm -hmm. Linda, you know, your reaction from. You know, your experience. In, spe- in my experience is that, um, shoot, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And and uh, so if, if there had been an arrest, two things could happen. One, he could come out and be very apologetic, and we could start the honeymoon, what they call the honeymoon phase all over again, where uh, it's, I'm so sorry, and, you know, I didn't mean to do this, and I just don't know how we got this way. And, 
you know, if you just hadn't done that, I wouldn't have blah, blah, blah. And or there could have been the retaliation and and where it could have been worse. And that was the that was the um, one of the uh, most difficult things about being in that situation is you never knew when it was coming or how. I mean, it just there was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bob, I'd also like to point out that in Monroe County, uh, it is a condition of the release that there be no contact uh, mm-hmm. with the victim until further order of a court. And uh, uh, obviously, in the interim, we are consulting with the victim. And if she wishes that no contact order remain in effect, it is made more formal at the initial hearing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I wanted to talk about with mandatory arrest mm-hmm. is to refer back to Linda's story. So if you have a mandatory arrest setting, Linda could have been arrested as well on that occasion. And that will happen in a police department perhaps where you bring back an arrest and the officer doesn't have the time to sort that out. That ends up as the prosecutor's problem. And so where you have a good prosecutor, the prosecutor figures out who was really the perpetrator, who was really the victim. And you will see one dropped and the other pursued. Mm-hmm. So, and, and typically, and we've been working with our local law enforcement to uh, make a greater effort to identify an initial aggressor or the individual who has a history of abuse uh, at the scene. Uh, but uh, Toby's right. When we're uh, facing a situation where there are two defendants, uh, both parties, we don't have a victim. And uh, that's, uh, that's like a strike against us uh, going into the case against either one. So we want to minimize that occurrence. And fortunately, uh, over the past uh, few years, we've been able to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a comment uh, that was phoned in from Catherine, who wants to thank the panel for this discussion, wants to point out that domestic violence can manifest in different forms. She didn't realize uh, that she was in an emotionally abusive relationship. So I see a lot of nodding heads. So somebody want to sort of explain that further, talk about that further? Would you like me to take that one? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Um, Yeah, it's very rare for abuse to start out as physical. So it'll start out verbal, emotional, psychological, and escalate from there. So even though the government says to a program like ours, we're only going to give you money for people who come in because they feel that their lives are threatened, we accept people into Middleway House who are having their lives destroyed in a different way. And um, Linda, I I think one of the one of the um, biggest realizations I've had about domestic violence is, and and the abuse is that um, it's really not about anger. It isn't anger. It's about control. And so. When it takes the other forms, such as the the um, emotional abuse and, and, you know, you're ugly and you can't do this right and you can't do that right and there's never, ever pleasing them, that's, that's generally a control issue just as beating somebody. Mm-hmm. All right. We have a phone call. So uh, if you could put your headphones on so you can listen to our caller. Um, we have Paul from Bloomington who's on the phone. Paul? Yeah. Hi. 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 Um, I appreciate everything that's being said. I have a personal uh, story involving an abuse victim. Uh, my fiance was a victim of a very long, uh, abusive relationship, and she left him, and we got together, and he began stalking her and myself. I convinced her to get a restraining order, and the judge awarded her damages for the medical bills and stuff that she had accrued from this history of abuse, but my what really upset me is that what I'm hearing on the radio is completely different from my personal, our personal experience with the Bloomington police. Uh, I finally, a year and a half later, went back to the judge, and we both went before the judge, and uh, I had a recording of him saying he was telling her he was going to kill me or drag me in a ditch and beat me and leave me there for days. And uh, I played that for the judge. We had 19 different police reports that nothing ever came of any of them. And those are just the times that we called the police. And that's just the times that I called the police for myself, not including the times that he harassed her, stalked her, threatened her. And uh, even the judge gave him another warning while he was on the uh, 
restraining order. And uh, she eventually let the restraining order go, and uh, I'm still trying to convince her to reinstate it. It's, he hasn't left her alone. It's been about four years, and it's calmed down a little bit. But, uh, you know, he does some cyber-stalking, and he reaches out to her through other people and calls from other phone numbers, even though he blocks as many numbers as we know. Uh, and our experience in the police was, you know, sorry about your luck. Uh, and it was just really, really frustrating. I don't know how else to say it. I was, I was really disgusted with it. Well, let's uh, – yeah, let's – Paul, let's – call in our judge who's here today, Judge Francie Hill. I think one of the things that we've not really talked about in the discussion, which we'll get a little bit to what the caller is talking about, is there's a parallel track to the criminal process that um, the prosecutor's been talking about. And that parallel uh, track is really the Indiana Civil Protection Order. And that, again, is civil. So it is by a preponderance of the evidence, not beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, It doesn't come off of an arrest. And one of the key parts to it is that a person can ask for a protection order without first having a hearing. That's called ex parte. It means, and it's very different from our traditional judicial system, which requires people the opportunity to make a complaint and someone respond before anything happens. In the ex parte protection order, you write out a three-page complaint that has very specific blanks to fill in. And if the court finds by a preponderance of the evidence without a hearing, the court can issue a protection order. Now, based upon what kind of services additionally or remedies are requested, there may need to be a hearing. Um, and there often is a hearing. Now, there's to understand the civil protection order, there's kind of three components to it uh, that vary. The first one is domestic violence. Domestic violence requires a physical harm or a threat of physical harm, and that requires that it be in a familial relationship or an intimate relationship. So that could be a dating relationship, um, a sexual relationship, mother-son, um, husband-wife. That's domestic violence. There's a subcomponent of that called stalking, and that's a little bit about what you may have been talking about. And you can ask for a civil protection order for stalking. That is a repeated and continuing form of harassment, and it doesn't require any specific kind of familial relationship. Then there's a third one, which is people who are victims of sex offenses. Even though that sounds criminal, like it has a criminal aspect to it, in this context, it is civil. So what you're talking about was a situation of stalking. It sounded, though, as if the woman in the relationship had had a, um, a dating or some other uh, a familial relationship with that person. It could have also been domestic violence. So you have to separate out a little bit whether it's domestic violence or stalking, but the remedies are very similar. And the remedies, as you pointed out, can be the judge can um, order medical expenses, the judge can order attorney fees and a variety of things like that. Now, I'm not sure they've really answered the question, so I'd like to kind of send it over to police or law enforcement with regard to um, your concerns from that kind of that avenue. Okay, Kevin? Yeah, um, certainly um, to differentiate law enforcement, we are with the criminal component. So our burden of proof is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We do not have a preponderance of the evidence. So um, I tape a digital recording of the man threatening to kill me and uh, leave me in a ditch for days after beating me senseless. That doesn't count as a criminal complaint. Well, certainly that can. He played it for the police. I mean, okay. it didn't do anything. Okay. Well, that... But here's Kevin, if I could interject for a minute. Um, And this is Bob Miller from the prosecutor's office. Um, You know, obviously, we're not going to be able to speak specifically uh, to this incident. And um, and uh, obviously, I'd be interested in exploring it uh, with you one on one if you'd like to call the prosecutor's office beginning of the week. And uh, but um, but clearly in the context of where. There is not a pending criminal prosecution, and uh, and the the remedy that uh, the victim had sought was a civil protection order. A violation of that order constitutes a crime. Uh, it's called invasion of privacy, as well as a violation of the court order bringing about the possibility of a contempt. 
And, that's what uh, I understood. Right. And that's why I was so confused that after calling the police 19 times, having them even speak to him one-on-one and him admitting that he was in our property or around our house and calling us, they still nothing happened. It seemed to me like he was in contempt right. of court. Well, and, uh, well, well, well clearly, uh, you know, from from my perspective, if if these things occurred, then there's also been crimes that have occurred, and we would yeah. be very interested in exploring that uh, with you. So, right. um, yeah. uh, so I'm I'm, I'm sure that uh, we could get to the bottom of it. Good, I would like to. All right, Linda. I I had a suggestion that um, you know, if someone has come into the clerk's office and and given us a sim- similar story such as yours we have we would have asked them to set ask the judge for a hearing so that we can revisit what is going on and the judge can then make a determination whether or not this is a an invasion of privacy and right. from what i understand that you know the judge can can send them to jail right now if there's already a pr- protective order in right place. we had two hearings and on for the one, for the first one, for the for the order, and then the second one was after about a year and a half when it wouldn't stop. And uh, he brought a lawyer in, and before his lawyer showed up, she said she was going to jail him for a week. And then after his lawyer showed up, they tried to argue that he had no clue about the protective order, even though the police had spoken to him about it, that he was there when the judge ordered it, and the judge ended up not. Uh, just letting him go with a warning saying, the next time you do this, I'll put you in jail, which is what she said the first time, you know, a year and a half previous. So, All right, Paul, it sounds like a case uh, for for Bob Miller to help you solve. So contact uh, the prosecutor's office, and then uh, I'm sure he'll help you get to the bottom of it. Great. I do appreciate the conversation, and I'm glad that everybody's hearing about this and hope that more gets done with it. All right, Paul. Thanks a lot for the call. We're going to have to take a short break. Let me give you the phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area, or you can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times. Today's show is about domestic violence and efforts in Monroe County to prevent it. Uh, we're, we're talking about some protective order uh, issues with protective orders. Um, and we just had a, a phone call um, that our, our panelists want to, to react to just a little bit. Our panelists are Monroe County Clerk Linda Robbins, Middleway House Executive Director Toby Strout, Monroe County Chief Deputy Prosecutor Bob Miller, Indiana State Police Officer Kevin Getz, and Monroe Circuit Judge Francie Hill. And uh, our last caller, Paul, was talking about a particular situation, and um, he didn't feel like he was getting satisfaction from the, the police uh, in particular. And and I, I know uh, Kevin wants to respond to that. Well, I, I just think sometimes as a law enforcement uh, representative, yes, it is frustrating for us at times, and and I hope people understand we are not the start and the end of this process. Um, I mean, all you have to do is look at our table here. I'm just one component of that. We have a prosecutor, and we have Middleway that is part of the process, and we have a judge. We have the judicial system, so it's not it it's the law enforcement angle is just the initial start of this of this process for 
for our victims and for our investigations and it that it continues along this uh, judicial path. Mm-hmm. All right, let me uh, let me say uh, our phone numbers again, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Go ahead, Francie. Um, what I'd like to say is uh, regardless of what the police do, <laughs> any individual can go down to the clerk's office and ask for assistance or they can actually get onto the Internet and look up a protection order form. And they can fill it out and request a protection order. So um, if you're dissatisfied with what the police have done or regardless of what the police have done, you need protection. Someone has harmed you or threatened to harm you or, as the last caller talked about, said they were going to kill you. Then you come down and fill out a protection order. Um, It is detailed um, and you would benefit from a little bit of assistance Mm -hmm. to be sure that you've got it. But you have that power within your own control. Mm-hmm. And just just to refer to the preponderance of the evidence, what that actually means is it's more likely than not that this has occurred. It's like a 51 percent, 49 percent. That's correct. Yeah, not a particularly high standard. Mm-hmm. We do it by kind of a balancing of the scales, just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And it can be done ex parte. It doesn't require a hearing for the initial order to be issued. Mm-hmm. Linda? If they come to our office, I, d- I want to um, explain, too, that we have uh, – Francie has – Judge Hill has – has uh, mentioned that it's a long process to fill out these forms. And, you know, when you are upset or you have something uh, emotional in your life at the time, it's difficult to sit down and fill out forms. So we have in the clerk's office representatives from Middleway House. We have uh, we have interns from the IU School of Social Work, and we also have students from the law school that work with the IU Bloomington are uh, you protective order project and of course the the uh, prosecutors right down the hall if there is victim and victim assistance so anybody who comes in our office will have some resources available to them right away and and the help they need to be able to fill out these forms successfully all right we have a phone call so we're going to go to uh, robert from bloomington robert yes i uh colleen Pretty much right on line with what you're saying, where there does need to be a cooling off period whenever there's a domestic violence or potential domestic violence issue. However, sometimes whenever the police are called out, a crime hasn't been committed. And that's where I get concerned. Whenever you're intaking someone into the criminal justice system without that crime being committed, and I know that you can't detain somebody um, without arresting them, but there seems like there should be something that can happen where you remove the person from the situation without intaking them. Is there any way to to prevent people who are criminals from being labeled or having that stigma of being placed in jail or incarcerated? Um, Just uh, to help out that person, too, or while you're trying to sort out who might have been the aggressor in this situation. Bob Miller? Well, well, clearly, if there's been an act of violence, uh, whether they have been both involved in it or, or it is just one, all that is required for an arrest is one uh, party, a victim, saying that they were uh, physically assaulted or the subject of some other crime. It doesn't have to be a crime of violence necessarily. It could be uh, destroying personal property. It could be trespassing. It could be threats, which could constitute intimidation. Uh, all of these things are covered by the criminal law. Uh, e- even uh, when it's uh, an argument um, uh, setting, uh, that could uh, constitute disorderly conduct under the law. So so th- there are a lot of options available to officers who respond to domestic calls, uh, as they're classically known. Now, if, in fact, an officer gets to a scene and they simply cannot reach that probable cause threshold, um, then there's very little that a police officer can do in that context except advise um, a potential victim of the services that are available in the community. Uh, And then, of course, um, uh, there are options available with respect to 
finding someone that might be in need of uh, psychiatric services, but uh, uh, that would be the, the uh, province of our Adult Protective Services Unit in the prosecutor's office, and a call could be made to them if it's somebody that's mentally unstable. Okay. Anybody else? Any other response? Okay. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, thank you. All right. Again, eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at WFIU dot org slash noon edition. We have a question uh, that came in. Can a child get any relief in a domestic violence situation or does an adult have to be the one to take legal action? It is generally speaking, the way it's set up is that an adult can file for a protection order for their own protection, or they can file for a protection order in the name of the specific child, or they can file for a protection order for themselves and name the child as a household member. So there is a way to protect. I think the difficult things about protection orders, when they overlap with custody proceedings, divorce or a child born out of wedlock, we call those paternity cases, when there's a dispute that is boiling up in that divorce case, and all of a sudden we've got a protection order going too. We try to make sure, and through the clerk doing this, um, that it gets in front of the same judge so we don't have inconsistent orders as to this. But there are definitely ways to um, provide for protection. Now, one of the things I would say too is the most important ways we provide protection for children in our community is through the Department of Child Services. So if you believe a child is abused or neglected, my first thought is call the Department of Child Services. Um, and oftentimes I will have a protection order going and I will have someone from DCS, the Department of Child Services, come to to kind of sort out between what's the violence between the parents and how at risk the child is and which home the child should be in. Mm-hmm. I have another question about about protective orders, um, how how broad can they be written? What can they? What all can be written into them? What can they do? It's an excellent question, and we spent some time talking about them. They really have two components. That is, they can be as to specific persons, and they can also name specific places. So, when you're talking about a specific purpose, person, and we talked about, does that mean it protects the person anywhere? And the answer is yes. Indiana's statute does not specifically say you can't come within a certain amount of space. The way I define it instead is if you go into a place and the petitioner is there and you're the respondent, then you have to leave. And it's not just sight or touch protection. It's also they can't call, can't text, can't Twitter, can't communicate or ask other people to communicate. So you have the ability to protect the individual. You also have the ability to to protect household or family members if they're specifically identified. And then you can additionally protect specific locations. It could be the workplace. It could be school. Now, sometimes there's some confusion because you've protected both the person and the place. Or what if you protect the person but not the place? Are they still protected when they're at work? And my general thought is yes. The person is protected wherever they are. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we, I think this may be a TV thing or a, a novel thing, but I mean, there are lots of times when, you know, we'll hear about somebody who's just, you know, been seen on the street. And I mean, are those, do those cases come up frequently? Do you have to hear from people who say, well, I was just driving home. I just happened to be in that neighborhood. In the, in the, with this offense of stalking, um, that's where it comes up most of the times, but it can come up in other situations. A person is sitting in front of the house on a public road, or they are walking to go legitimately to a place they have the right to, but their sidewalk goes directly by the house of the person. I've tried to be as creative as I can, allow them to go where they're entitled to be, but to cordon off the places that they aren't. So while the individual is protected, there's still that issue of um, they're not coming into their home and getting them, but they're walking by and consistently looking in the window. That can be a form of harassment and stalking. So we'll say, okay, here's the other legitimate way for you to walk. You won't go on that sidewalk. But uh, And then sometimes I say, they're on a public highway. They have the right to be there. But it's looking at the specific facts. If there's another direction for them to go, or more likely I can tell they are specifically going on that way, not to get from point A to B, but to harass this particular person. And, and with regard to what the judge was saying, if it's one specific incident, and uh, obviously that can be explained, but if suddenly we start seeing a pattern of, well, he's 
our, our protected person keeps running into the perpetrator suddenly at more public places. They suddenly run to the grocery store together a lot or at the mall or at, you know, at the high school games together a lot. In, in I know Bob can speak to this. We're talking about totality of the circumstances, the big – the pieces of the puzzle. As we start to put more of the pieces together, we say, ah, okay, well, maybe it wasn't that one incident where he just happened to walk by because that was the way he – the perpetrator, he or she needed to go. But as we put all the pieces together, we see a pattern of harassment, and then there is our, our criminal remedy. Mm-hmm. All right. Again, uh, we have about 10 or 15 minutes to go, about, about 10 minutes to go in the program. So if you have a question or a call, uh, anything you want to share with us, please do at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And if you just want to sit back and listen to us, that's fine, too. We can we can uh, cover this. Um, Bob, the, they're, they're – uh, have been lots of instances. I mean, the the most. I mean, all all these incidents are very very serious. But then they can escalate to a situation where there is a death. You know, with, with weapons involved. Um, I guess my first question would be with with protect, uh, protection orders. Again, is there anything that can be done about? Um, firearms or weapons. Well, again, and the judge could also uh, chime in on this, but yes, uh, part of the remedy in a protective order uh, is to require the respondent to surrender all firearms and uh, be subject to an order that they cannot possess a firearm for the duration of the order, which can be as long as two years. Actually, it could be longer than that, depending on the order of the judge. Uh, so, yeah, that is part of uh, the protective order statute or the order of protection statute. But um, uh, clearly that would require a hearing. Uh, that can't, cannot be done ex parte. And so um, I know that the judge uh, uh, can reflect upon what it is that she might want to see in the allegations before she would issue an order like that. Mm-hmm. Judge? Right. Certainly um, different remedies require a hearing. And one of the remedies, if you want to have – an order that there be no weapons held by the respondent, then that requires a hearing. And things that I'm looking at with regard to that order is, was a weapon involved in the specific incident? We talked about filling out the petition for protection. It has slots for three different incidents. I have lots of people who attach a page, and I get six or seven different incidents. But if any of those incidents involve a weapon, then that's going to be the clear beginning point that we probably need to be sure. One, we've issued an order not to purchase or possess weapons, and also a pickup on weapons. Which weapons do you have, and um, where are they? And sometimes we've allowed people, by the petitioner's agreement, for um, the respondent to give someone else their weapons and hold them. That's not the general rule, but if the petitioner's in agreement and it's a Civil War musket or something of that, we've made we've bent some things. Other times, the first thing I'm looking at, it, is there a nexus between this violence and that weapon? But And then probably the next thing I'm looking at is how violent is it and how um, frightening is what's happening and how likely is it to turn to um, the use of some kind of a weapon. And then we have the authority and the power to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have a a question that was uh, uh, sent in online. What steps should a neighbor take if they witness domestic violence and what should they do if they take the victim into their home? Well, clearly, uh, anyone who witnesses a crime should call 911. Um, you know, the, the idea that that question should be asked is an indication of where we still are as a culture. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> when someone is beaten, uh, that is a crime. It doesn't matter that they live together. And so um, uh, neighbors should take the initiative um, and call 911. Even if all they can hear is an argument, they should call 911. Uh, Police need to know that this is taking place. That's the first step in the process. Uh, In terms of taking someone into their home, well, presumably, um, uh, if there has not been a 911 call made, then that still should take place. Uh, Many times neighbors want to defer to the victim to make that decision at the time, and and that's nice, uh, that's friendly, but that doesn't solve the problem that the victim uh, doesn't want police involvement. Obviously, we can sort all that out later, uh, but the police should be called regardless. Mm -hmm. Toby, do you have – I mean, you've 
I'm sure you've been involved with cases like this before, too. Any advice for this person? We know that the more community support you have, the more likely you are to follow through uh, and leave an abusive relationship, seek the assistance of the various agencies and services. On the other hand, you want to be very careful that you don't inadvertently invite the violence into your own home and put your own family at risk. And so call 911 um, and keep your involvement as short as possible until that help arrives. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm, I want to ask all of you, because I know, uh, you know you all represent different sort of areas, and this is not an issue that's going to go away overnight. It's an issue that, uh, you know, Toby's been a frequent guest on this show and has been working on this for a long time. Bob Miller has, too. Everybody in the room has a, a long history of dealing with this. What you know, what are the one or two key things you think our community needs to do? Uh, maybe, you know, what do we do best and what maybe do we still need a little bit of work on to try to, to make it as safe a place as possible? Bob, I'm going to turn to you first. Well, clearly, the, the biggest dilemma we have is the under-reporting of the crime. Um, obviously, we also need to deal with the issue of victim cooperation once we get to that point. But but getting um, the community uh, and victims uh, to the point where they feel com- comfortable in coming forward and reporting an incident is first and foremost. But but under uh, underlying that is is really um, the need for education um, at a very young age. Um, as um, as Linda related in her story, the fact that her a young child had already been conditioned to accept uh, male violence against women uh, in her household is an indication of what we're up against because this is this is generational uh, uh, you know this pa- this passes from parent to child and so clearly we need to have some component in our educational system uh, that deals with interpersonal violence okay Francie? I would quickly say that I don't know that this is the most important, but it is very much of a concern that we need to address, and that is Internet um, violence and harassment. I can't tell you how many um, components of the protection order process relate to um, an individual who is Facebooking or Twittering, and that lack of sensitivity that if you say, and the the person who's sending it maybe thinks they're kidding or joking, maybe not, but I'm going to kill you, or you're in trouble, or you're coming down, um, those kinds of phrases are frightening, terrorizing, and people have to realize that action will be taken upon them. And it, it's that process of desensitizing is not one that's compatible with uh, effectively dealing with domestic violence. Mm-hmm. You guys hold your thoughts for a second because we have a phone call I want to get to. Uh, Susan is on the line. Susan? Hello. Hi. Go ahead. Okay. I, I wanted to um, bring up a different issue where my domestic domestic violence didn't really start until after I made the decision to separate. And this may happen more often than people know about. I don't know. But, um, you know, eventually I was injured and um, stalked. And my ex-husband now did spend time in jail. We left the county um, and he did come there and and harassed us some and was arrested there. But at that time, um, he wasn't really punished because in that county because we were told he hadn't been in trouble in that county before. I was pretty appalled, and my daughter and I felt very unsafe for quite a while. Is that still the issue? If if it happens in a different county, it's not considered as... Uh, it would have been if it was a repeat offense in another county. I hope that that's not still the issue. This was about 25 years ago. I'd like to I'd like to be very um, give you some good news in that the uh, state and the law enforcement communities and the and the courts have all gotten together and uh, we have a. Uh, statewide or federal system that as soon as a a protective order is put in place, it's available to any police officer in in anywhere in the United States. So, um, and it is 
it doesn't matter if it happened here and you went to Wyoming. If there was a second incident there, they would be able, they would have access to that information, and you would have you would have some uh, protection. My impression also is that attitudes have changed a lot in the last 25 years, thanks heavens, and these things aren't being treated as lightly as they used to be. But the prosecutor in that county where we moved did know about the, uh, prior, you know, the protective order and the prior um, times that he was held in jail. And uh, anyway, I'm glad to hear that people are actually dealing with this and taking it a lot more seriously than they used to. Um, it's also very hard for victims because a lot of times, uh, maybe even family, but certainly friends, don't want to believe it and really won't give any support to the actual victims. And I experienced that myself. It was very difficult. All right. Thanks, Susan. Thanks a lot for the call. Okay, we have uh, less than two minutes to go, so if each of the three of you have any any last comments, I, Linda? I do. I want to talk about other good news. That's that, And one of the things, you've asked for, for things that we're doing right, and I think the very fact we're having this panel is one of the things we're doing right. We have a lot of communication between the different agencies and and talking about how we can improve what we are doing to make this make this problem a um, more apparent and something more easier that we can deal with mm-hmm. and and that's extremely important right. toby yeah i just wanted to say that um i think we've shown that things have changed a lot they've changed for the better this is all very good every system could use some improvement and the one that's close to my heart is the integrated specialized dv court a domestic violence court. That is right. both that handles both criminal and civil uh-huh. cases. That's just close to my heart. I've been okay. reading a lot about it, and they're very effective. All right, Officer now, Getz. I I just hope that the the Monroe County and, and listening community uh, understand that that this is a, a a problem that affects all of us, and that it's not just as simple as why didn't she just leave for that night. That is an extremely complex issue. And that is why you have all of these components uh, doing every effort that we have to to find a solution to this problem. Okay. Sorry, Bob. I'm going to have to cut you off. We're out of time. I want to thank uh, Linda Robbins, Toby Strout, Bob Miller, Kevin Getz, and Judge Francie Hill for being here with me today. For our my usual co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael, producers Gretchen Frazee and Emily Wright, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net and from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement, offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu.